The Atlanta Athletic Club, a history, written by Charles Elliott in 1973. Chapter 12. The Atlanta Athletic Club may be considered a link between the old and the new. As times have changed drastically since the birth of the club back in 1898, so has this organization, set up originally for athletic, recreational, and social fellowship. All of this continues to be part of the club, but upon somewhat more of a modern basis of improved quarters, equipment, and possibly the general conception of what an athletic club is all about. Not only in athletic endeavors, but in numerous ways, AAC has touched hands with history. Much of it has been the stuff upon which tradition is built. In the background are stories and objects, some little known, that have contributed their share to the club or to help it, within its lifetime, become a legend. Many of the tangible assets within this realm are gone, some destroyed, others lost through one means or another, but plans are being made to preserve the remnants of those artifacts in the new clubhouse. Here, taken from Club Times, are a couple of examples of men and events having touched the life of AAC in one way or another over the years that are worthy of record here. Colonel Willard Brown, U.S. Army Air Force retired, tells us that in 1926, when the athletic club moved from Auburn Avenue to its new home on Carnegie Way, his father, Homer Willard Brown, one of the earliest members of the club, loaned to AAC a Revolutionary War musket for exhibit in the men's lounge. This musket had seen action in the Battle of Lexington on April 19, 1775, where it was used by the colonel's great-great-great-grandfather, Solomon Brown, of Lexington. Scott Hudson, AAC president in 1926, displayed the historic piece in a locked cabinet, and there it remained for almost 40 years before it was put on exhibit at the Atlanta Historical Society. Colonel Brown, who retired from the U.S. Air Force after 28 years of service, was born in Atlanta, graduated Tech High and Georgia Tech, was both a junior and senior member of AAC, and as of this writing, is associated with the University of Alabama. That old musket, which was a showpiece in our downtown club for so many years, and will be remembered by some of the older members, was returned to the Brown family. No one seems to have any exact figures, but we may have a very valuable piece in an old painting which hung over the fireplace in the men's lounge at our Carnegie Way Club for as long as anyone can remember. Apparently no one was even aware of it until a few years ago before we moved AAC's operation in its entirety to Riverbend. Being shrouded in mystery and almost lost in the shuffle of a modern and complex management, this is one of the most intriguing properties of the club. Nowhere in the archives that exist can we find a record of who presented this picture, or who purchased it, where it came from, or any of its history, all of which must make a very dramatic story. A few years ago, when the men's lounge was being redecorated, the old picture was found to be so coated over with dust and film of the years it was almost too dim to see. The workers were within a hair's breadth of ripping it off the wall when the club manager, who happened to walk in at that very moment, suggested that it be taken down carefully for a more thorough examination before it was destroyed or discarded. When he discovered that it was a painting on canvas and appeared to be rather old, the manager carried it to the late L.P. Skidmore, who was then director of the High Museum of Art, for an appraisal. Director Skidmore identified the painting as an original by Salvatore Rosa and said that its title was Blue Mountains and the Dolomites in Northern Italy. The scene depicts the Valley of Thiers with Mount Tofana in the background. 
This painting by an old master was approximately three centuries old. Skidmore carefully cleaned the canvas and with his own hands carefully rehung it in the niche over the fireplace. He also gave the club a bit of history about the painter, which added to the charm of the old masterpiece. Salvatore Rosa was born in Naples in 1615 and lived through a rather turbulent existence until he died in Rome in 1673. As a youngster, he spent his time between being a rather rowdy individual and studying art under both his uncle, Paolo Greco, and brother-in-law, Francesco Fracanzaro, and later under Jose Ribera. When he was 18 years old, he ran away and joined a group of bandits operating in Abruzzi, a mountainous region of central Italy. Many of his later paintings, in which he featured robbers, the stark terrain of naked crags, wild waterfalls, and tempestuous elements, reflect this period of his life and are said to especially distinguish the artist. After his father died, Rosa returned to Naples to take care of his poverty-stricken family. He made a portion of his poor living by painting and then hawking his pictures in the streets. Success is often a long, rough grind. It was for Salvatore Rosa. His paintings began to attract attention, and he moved to Rome, where at first he was only moderately successful. His vitriolic portrayal of Roman politics in the upper crust of society kept him in almost constant conflict with the authorities. But his work was appreciated, and he made another step up the ladder when he was commissioned to paint the portico of the Cardinal's Palace. His talents were many. He was only 24 years old when he decided to put aside his palette and devote himself to being a poet, singer, and actor. In this brief career, he was most successful and was said to have all Rome at his feet before he left the stage and went back to his brushes. He hit lasting fame with his Prometheus, and in 1652 he painted his famous Jonah preaching at Nineveh for the king of Denmark. His masterpiece among masterpieces is considered to be Conspiracy of Catiline, which hangs in Florence. Most of his other pictures are scattered around the art capitals of the world. The Rosa painting, which hung so long at Carnegie Way, was rehung in the golf shop locker room complex of AAC's new country club and may eventually find its way into an archives display. The Future Man has never found a way to accurately judge the future by what has happened in the past. No one can foresee the circumstances which cause change. It's doubtful that any of the 65 young businessmen who originated the Atlanta Athletic Club in 1898 would have predicted that AAC would be housed in eight different club buildings, including those at Eastlake, and own four magnificent 18-hole golf courses over a relatively short period of 75 years. Some of the old-time members who have been a part of the club for many decades feel that the roots of AAC at Riverbend are the deepest and most permanent in the history of the organization. Into the structures and facilities there have gone a lifetime of experience, and on this foundation the club has built well. As this is being written, the main club buildings at the new country club are on their way towards completion. They're expected to provide for all the needs the club members might have in the next score of years. Beyond that, who knows? For the first time, all athletic and social functions will be housed in one location. The main club building contains lounge and buffet areas, dining rooms, ballroom, extensive men and women's locker rooms, an attractive golf shop with club and cart storage underneath on the ground floor, and administrative offices. 
all of these are done in luxuriant appointments. Already established, adjacent to the parking area, is the swimming pool and tennis complex with bathhouse and snack bar, and beyond that a modern golf driving and practice range. Now under construction is the most modern gymnasium we've had in all of our 75 years. Our present athletic director predicts that, quote, This facility should really begin a new day for us. For the first time in the club's history, we have a complete women's department, supervised by a women's director. We plan to include such classes for women as yoga, slimnastics, gymnastics, badminton, and racquetball. The men will have three handball courts and one squash court, an exercise room, gymnasium, health club, and locker room. Our emphasis this year and in the future is to get as many of our men and women as possible involved in some form of physical activity, end quote. One of the big strides in our foreseeable future in an upcoming event of tremendous importance to the prestige of the club is the U.S. Open Championship, which will be held in 1976 at our comparatively new golf course. This is the first time in its 79-year history that the U.S. Open has been held in this section of the country. Most of its years, the tournament has been assigned to some club in a northeast or midwestern state. Three times it came south to Texas, and with the possible exception of the Congressional Country Club in Washington, D.C., it's as close as it's been to our part of the world. The acceptance of the Atlanta Athletic Club's invitation to hold the 1976 U.S. Open on its country club course is said to be a tribute to AAC's immortal Bobby Jones, who contributed so vastly to the sport as well as to the progress of his club. Jones was only one of six amateurs to win the Open, and he won it four times, a feat matched by only three other pro golfers in the Open's long history. It's equally as big a tribute to our club professional, Harold Sargent, who worked long and effectively to have the Open played over our new country club course. As a matter of interest, the first Open was held in 1895 as a one-day, 36-hole event at Newport Golf Club in Newport, Rhode Island. Played with the old gutta-percha ball, it was won by Horace Rollins, a British pro who had been in the U.S. for only nine months and was assistant pro at the Newport Club. At age 19, he was the youngest golfer ever to win the Open. Prize money was $150, $100, $50, $25, and $10 for the five best scores in this event. Compare that with today's take. For a number of reasons, the U.S. Open will be a valuable asset to AAC and its membership. One of the most consequential is the final completion of jobs that will make AAC's layout one of the best that golfing has to offer. The original golf architects left us with a number of problems. Two of the most pressing were traps and drainage. There were some tree problems too, but they were not as acute. To correct these and other minor difficulties, the club has engaged the services of George Fazio, presently one of the best men in this business. Work is moving ahead and he'll have the grounds in top shape from every standpoint for the tournament. An example is the 18th green selected for play. As anyone who watches television knows, the crowds congregate on the last few holes and especially around the last green. As this is written, the 18th hole is an elevated green, making observation of the play there impossible by all but a few spectators. This green, therefore, will be lowered, and with the surrounding terrain made into a bowl arrangement that will accommodate a maximum number of the gallery. Pro Harold Sargent feels that other tremendous benefits will gravitate to the club as well, both before and after the Open is held. 
A great many people, he points out, go far out of their way to play a course where one of the major championships, like the Open, is played. These visitors, who naturally must be guests of members, bring in an unbelievable amount of green fees, and this money is spent for course improvement. In 1898, a handful of Atlanta businessmen got together, and the idea of the Atlanta Athletic Club was born. And as Atlanta grew and changed, so did AAC. It survived many relocations, fires, and even the Great Depression. And thanks to the leadership and the spirit of its members through the many decades, it is now stronger and more prestigious than ever. At the time of this writing, the club itself is 75 years young. If the 65 men who founded the club in the prime of their life could come back now, they would certainly be proud of what the club is and what it stands for today. They would, without a doubt, go back to their rest with dreams as real as our own for the many years ahead. This has been the Atlanta Athletic Club, a history, written by Charles Elliott in 1973, produced by Zuzah Films, Atlanta.